Before we start this episode, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge recent events and say that here on Floor 9, we support all those making a stand and advocating for equality and social justice. Police brutality and systematic racism are long-standing problems and they are long overdue for change. We condemn racism in all its forms and are committed to being active allies in the fight for racial justice and equality. Hello, and thank you for joining all of us from our respective homes. I am your host, Scott Elchison, uh, and welcome back to another week of Floor 9. Um, Adam, are you ready to dive into some news this week? Uh, yeah, let's talk about some uh, tech and marketing news. Let's talk about some tech and marketing news. So our first story this week, uh, Pinterest has a new lens feature that lets you find products based on your photos. Uh, so Pinterest adds a shop tab to its lens camera search results to showcase matching in-stock products. Uh, Pinterest says it is now seen as many three times the number of visible searches using the Pinterest camera compared with 2019. Um, so that, that's a pretty big announcement uh, and update to their their product to really get people to start using this uh, as a as a true search functionality, um, knowing that like they're one of the first people to come out with something in the space. Yeah, it's uh, Pinterest has been steadily moving down the funnel and building out some of those lower funnel tools. Uh, so it's really exciting to see them bring this uh, to uh, Pinterest Lens, which uh, is still you know one of the the market leaders in visual search, despite the fact that you have Google obviously as a search heavyweight, um, also <laughs> also entering also in the space. Uh, Pinterest continues to uh, innovate and I think continues to mm-hmm. justify their position as a strong visual search provider. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it seems like maybe the only part that is missing is the social discovery part. But as we know, Instagram is really doubling down uh, on on that one. So again, social commerce, something that continues to develop and be of interest uh, to us at the you know Floor 9 crew here. Um, CVS, another news, uh, is testing driverless vehicles in Houston uh, for safe, socially distanced medical deliveries. Uh, they are partnering with Nero. Uh, to, do, to deliver these prescriptions uh, in pilot areas, which have been made up of three different zip codes uh, in Houston, Texas. Um, and just to note, uh, the start of these tests will not be with their actual R2 delivery robot, but instead it'll be with retrofitted Toyota Priuses uh, with a safety driver. And that seems to be how Nero is actually rolling out all their tests. Uh, similarly, when they worked with Walmart, they did the same thing. It was Toyota Priuses first and then on to the actual R2 delivery robots. So that, that's pretty exciting. You know? Yeah, it's it's building on what CVS did uh, a month or so ago um, with drone delivery in Florida, where they were testing a delivery of prescription uh, medicines using uh, flying drones to seniors in Florida. So CVS is really uh, pushing pretty hard right now. I think they're using this opportunity of social distancing to really um, push forward and, and leap ahead in mm-hmm. uh, autonomous delivery, while it is obviously very valuable to uh, to everyone, especially seniors right now. Absolutely. Uh, and I look at this as this like a, you know, a game of logistics. It seems like owning potentially that like logistics side of the business is, is this a very um, advantageous thing to have? Obviously, Amazon is, you know, has a big competitive advantage knowing that like they have their own like logistics network. And so it just seems like 
something that used to be in the background is becoming more and more important for every brand to really be thinking about and having like a primary investment in how their product moves because that can really help with the overall in a sense like you know operations efficiencies that a business has uh is kind of where my mind is going with all this you know drone delivery and uh, operations um, next up is uh, that uh, it has uh, come to uh, everyone's attention that AT and T is exempting uh, HBO Max, which is of course uh, one of their subsidiaries at this point, uh, from their mobile data caps. So uh, AT and T is basically zero rating HBO Max, so it will not count against mm-hmm. your monthly data usage. Um, this is something that uh, they had said that they weren't going to do um, when went back when they acquired uh, <laughs> HBO uh, back in the day, uh, but uh, obviously with uh, a lot of our net neutrality um, regulations uh, out the window as of a couple of years ago, um, there's nothing really stopping them from doing this. So they're, they're going to take the opportunity and, uh, you know, bundle uh, HBO Max with AT&T service with, for, with uh, obviously no, no hit to the consumer. Um, and I think this is interesting mm-hmm. because pretty much all of the mobile carriers bundle some kind of video service for, uh, into their, their at least their premium tier plans. But in a case where you have someone like a Verizon offering you a year of Disney Plus for free, Verizon actually has to pay Disney for those subscribers. Um, they get them at a discount. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not paying the same as, as you or I, but they do have to pay them for those, uh, for those customers. And in this case, this is a way for H- AT&T to uh, offer that same service, that same kind of service with without having to uh, have any money change hands because they're, of course, a subsidiary. Um, so I think it is it is definitely in that uh, the realm of bundling economics, um, and uh, it's it's not surprising. And if you're an AT&T customer, good, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, as an AT&T customer, yay. Uh, that's a positive, but as a supporter of uh, net neutrality, boo. Um, yeah. It's exactly what we you know, thought would happen, even though they said no. So I guess we'll have to just roll with that one. Um, But on the live streaming side of things, uh, Bleacher Report is looking to roll out live stream shows uh, in its app. So Bleacher Report has uh, announced that like they were testing a new live video format. Um, and this first came about last month when Bleacher Report produced about 12 hours of live coverage of the NFL draft over three days. Uh, and just to get some numbers behind this, in total, the live streams generated uh, roughly 12 million video plays in app, which is about four times more video views than its video coverage of the 2019 draft had, uh, which is pretty impressive. And I think, again, this is goes to uh, what we've seen a lot of companies innovate around uh, during this uh, you know, pandemic period is just been the pivot to live video uh, and just really showing how important uh, and how really beneficial that can be uh, as a way to deliver content to an audience uh, that is stuck at home. Yeah, and this is also coming on the heels of Bleacher Report last year launching podcasts within their app as well. So they've mm-hmm. they've already accustomed users to use the app to access most of their content. So there's already a lot of users who have this app installed, and, and having the video content uh, there is is going to get them, I think, a lot of eyeballs. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like they're on a positive path uh, upwards of that. You know, Bleacher Report has topped uh, one billion video views for the third consecutive month across all its social channels, uh, and it seems to be uh, bucking the down downward spiral trend that most sports media companies have been suffering so um good good on them they're uh, finding a way through this and adam i you know last up here as a peloton user do you want to take this <laughs> take this bit of news it's uh and as an apple fan and it's kind of joining you know two two worlds collide here <laughs> yeah um last uh 
uh, a minor minor release, I think, but uh, nonetheless significant. Um, Peloton uh, released uh, just today, actually, um, an Apple TV app um, that allows you to access their digital fitness content um, on your Apple TV. This is coming on the heels of uh, a release last year for the Fire TV and Chromecast. Um, I think the interesting thing here is that um, while the Fire TV and Chromecast were clearly about reaching a new audience, because if you have a Fire TV, there was previously no way to get Peloton content onto your television. Mm-hmm. With with the Apple TV, you have long been able to AirPlay from the iOS app to your Apple TV. Um, and so this is just making it a little, a little bit easier, a little bit of a, a cleaner um, experience. And I think it's actually less about trying to capture the existing Peloton users and get them using more of the content on their TV and more about capturing some new users and subscribers to their their digital platform. As we think about Peloton, Mm. most people think about the bike or the treadmill, but they actually have a really big and growing um, catalog of content that doesn't require specialized hardware. So things like yoga, um, body weight exercises, Mm. strength training, running. Uh, They've got a lot of content that you can do just within the app, within the apps, um, and I think that this is actually a play for to to get more of those people um, doing yoga in their living room using the the digital subscription. Yeah, I, that's fascinating. I, I actually I did not know that they had um, non hardware uh, workouts available uh, for them. So I mean, like yeah, that, that's super interesting. And for me, I I kind of look at it as. Um, you know, if you look at the actual on-demand space, like Beachbody on demand, I think is still, still the biggest player. Like they have hundreds of millions of users that are subscribed to like their at-home fitness routines and programs. Um, so it'll be interesting to really see if they can become like a second-place competitor uh, to you know uh, Beachbody on demand and Daily Burn and the the likes of that. Um, so that'll be interesting. And potentially, yeah. maybe even media opportunities, right? Because Daily Burn and Beachbody on demand all have media opportunities for brands within their uh, content and, and and their platform. So potentially. This is a way for brands to get in. Potentially. They've been very selective about that uh, on the Peloton side. Um, and it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Beachbody, is, uh, as you say, is huge. But Peloton definitely has the mind share um, as the at-home fitness brand. So I'm totally. wondering if they, they need, obviously need to do some education to get people aware of the fact that they have things that don't require an investment in, uh, in their own hardware. Um, but uh, if they can get people over that hump, I think uh, that... Uh, they they stand a chance to uh, seriously compete in the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. That wraps up this week's media and tech news. And we're going to transition directly into a conversation with Joshua Locock and Allison Pepper for a conversation about Section 230. So Joshua, Allison, welcome to Floor 9. Thank you, Scott. Uh, so Allison, welcome to Floor 9. Uh, let's start. There's something, if my memory serves me right, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act actually has some connection to the Wolf of Wall Street and the firm Stratton Oakmont. Uh, can you share some details about that? Yeah, you know, if you ever need proof in life that you have no idea what is going to come from what, Section 230's um, link back to Stratton Oakmont and the Wolf of Wall Street is an interesting example of that. So the short story is the firm featured in the movie Wolf of Wall Street, Stratton Oakmont, was a a brokerage firm in New York. And back in the early 90s, Stratton Oakmont sued Prodigy. And they sued Prodigy because an anonymous user on one of Prodigy's message boards had said that, you know, Stratton Oakmont, they're engaged in criminal activities. Everybody there is a liar. You know, it's, it's a terrible place. And Stratton Oakmont sued Prodigy. 
right? Stratton and Oakmont sued Prodigy. And there were probably several causes of action that they sued them, but one of them was essentially liable, right? You're, you're printing liable about us. Well, the case went to court and Stratton Oakmont actually won. Stratton Oakmont won the case against Prodigy. And there were a couple of members of Congress. Uh, one was a um, um, Democrat from Oregon named Ron Wyden. I think the other one might have been a, a Californian named Cox, but I'm not sure about that. At any rate, they saw the result of the Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy case and they said, this is a terrible result, right? If this type of precedent stands, we're going to kill this whole nascent internet industry that was developing in the early 90s. You know, we don't really know where this is going yet, but we think this is going somewhere. We think it's going to have huge applications to communication. We think it potentially is going to have huge applications to e-commerce. And basically, the Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy case was the genesis of Congress saying, hey, we need to do something about this. So they looked at that case and they basically started drafting Section 230. So weird link back to the Wolf of Wall Street weird. on that one. That is a weird <laughs> link back and connection. Uh, so let's get into Section 230 specifically, the 26 words that you know created the internet. What do those 26 words say exactly? So Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Okay, and I guess, you know, that's a handy definition, but what does it mean in plain and simple terms? We English. know the 26 words now. Yeah, what does it mean in English? Yeah, in English, it essentially means that users rather than sites are liable for the content they post in its simplest form. That's what it means. Uh, so basically... This provides platforms from being basically pseudonymous or oblivion based on anything posted by a user or anything posted by an advertiser for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of these platforms simply could not exist without this immunity. There seems to be some sort of misconception, though, that Section 230 provides platforms with broad immunity, but there are subsections. Uh, 230C2 has a Good Samaritan provision. And there's some obligations on platforms to act in good faith and remove obscene and offensive content. Has there been any other amendments or, and why do these things matter? Yeah, so Section 230, while it has been interpreted by the courts to provide uh, sites with incredibly broad immunity, it's not 100% immunity, right? There are, there are certain things that Section 230 recognizes that sites have to do to maintain that intermediary immunity. And you just mentioned some of them like good faith, good Samaritan, and it essentially means you you do have some responsibility to to look at your content and to make um, you know some good faith calls about what you need to remove and what you need to keep an eye on. You know, one of the reasons that's true is you have to keep in mind about why Section 230, which is part of the Communications Decency Act, how it even came about. As the name strongly implies. The Communications Decency Act was actually originally about controlling the um, spread of pornography websites. That's essentially how the Communications Decency Act came about. So Section 230 wanted to say that, listen, because the overall intent of the Communications Decency Act is at the time was to control the spread of pornography online, we're going to include provisions in Section 230. With The idea at the time was really that it was to require these sites to kind of keep their sites clean against things like pornography. So that was kind of the genesis of it. And the other reason that's in there is because 
There was concern in the early days, and I know we're going to get to this later, about the distinction between publishers and platforms, right? And the concern was that we wanted to make sure that the platforms have some incentive to exercise some sort of discretion on what's posted, but not lose their immunity. So that's why you have things like good faith and you have things like um, good Samaritan. It's basically to encourage the sites and platforms to do some editorial discretion without them being publishers. It's not like there's no screening process by the platforms. I mean, they screen for content and they screen and moderate ads as well. Is that consistent with what you see and understand as a requirement of Section 230? Yeah, exactly. We talked about this a little bit earlier in the podcast that there are some baked in provisions for a little bit of moderation into 230, things like Good Samaritan, et cetera, that say, you know, you want to give the platforms and you want to give websites an incentive to do some moderation in this area. So those provisions are already baked into 230. You know, same with advertising. You find a lot of the platforms have developed their own processes and practices to make sure that it's a good experience for the end user and it's a good experience for the company. So I think there is there is some moderation going there. Whether or not it goes beyond the limits of 230 or under the limits of 230, it's it's in some respects not really a legal question at that point. I think that's really interesting. And, you know, we're clearly having this discussion at the moment because, you know, in the last week or so, we've had Twitter come out and exercise some of that discretion. And more recently, this week, Snapchat's come out and made some comments and decisions. When we've spoken before, you've talked about, you know, Section 230 as being a circadian issue and it resurfaces every four to seven years. And, you know, what's clear, it's not even a political party issue. Both sides of politics actually have concerns about Section 230. So outside of content moderation and obscenity and everything else, why does it keep coming up every four to seven years? And do other things play into the way people think about Section 230? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the way that the issues evolved with the way Congress thinks about it is an issue that's basically evolved with the way the Internet's evolved a lot of ways. Like I said, Section 230 itself was a very bipartisan effort at the time that it was enacted or it was written into the Communications Decency Act. It was very bipartisan. I think it's evolved as the scale and the reach and the power, quite frankly, of, of platforms have evolved. And the bifurcation that you're seeing in the issue right now, there's there's a lot of little splintered nuance issues to it. But the big bifurcation you're seeing between at least, you know, Republicans and Democrats, the way they're both attacking 230 right now, is that what we've heard from uh, Republicans, quite frankly, over the last couple of years, is that the platforms are engaging in political bias, right? That there is, a, they feel like there is a liberal political bias and that there is censorship going on um, against a conservative or Republican point of view. The um, Democrats, on the other hand, feel that the platforms have become disincentivized to engage in any sort of efforts to spread disinformation, right? And we saw that come out of 2016 with the presidential campaign in 2016, um, the Intelligence Committee and has looked at things both on the House and the D side and the House and the Senate and has said, listen, you know, we've got a disinformation problem online. And the Democrats, quite frankly, feel that the platforms are doing nothing to control the spread of disinformation. So you've got both parties mad at the platforms right now over this issue for different reasons. And that anger is really starting to grow and it's really starting to hit an inflection point, I think. 
I think that's interesting. And, you know, the comment about the the platforms and political bias and, you know, whether they're incentivized to actually moderate and remove disinformation. I guess to what, you know, even as a foreigner, I feel like there's a lot of confusion about what the First Amendment means and yeah. what freedom of speech means and that platforms are private companies and they're meant to have terms of service. And to one extent, the platforms have been slow, I'll say, historically to enforce these on a consistent basis. Mm -hmm. uh, how much do you think that plays into the issue? I mean, I, for being the very First Amendment, it has somehow evolved as one of the most misunderstood rights, I think, that we have in this country. And there are kind of, there are several issues about, that I think they're just fundamentally misunderstood about the First Amendment. And I think all three of them play into the conversation that we're having. The first is that, I think this one's a little bit clearer than it used to be, but the First Amendment is about protection from government censorship of speech. It's not about protection from private companies censoring your speech. So the First Amendment is about, you know, freedom from government censorship, not private company. I'm not sure that's always been understood. The second thing is, I, for some reason, there's this mythology, and it's, it's untrue, that the First Amendment is an unfettered right that has no guardrails. Well, the First Amendment does have guardrails, right? And there were several of them. For instance, I mean, we've longer still with the First Amendment. You know, it's, it's not the right to violate someone's copyright protections. The First Amendment is not the right to incite riot, the classic case of yelling fire in a crowded theater. It doesn't give you the right to do that. And we have centuries-old body of case law around defamation right now that says the First Amendment is not the right to defame someone. So there are all kinds of guardrails on the First Amendment. It's not an unfettered right. I think that's been a little bit lost in some of the conversations that we've been having recently. And sort of the third issue that I would say that I think muddies the water around people's understanding of the First Amendment is there are different degrees of protection for different kinds of speech. So historically, the First Amendment has been understood to provide the highest level of protection for the individual speaker, right? But there's also First Amendment rights for speech for companies, and it's called commercial speech. And companies also have First Amendment rights under the commercial speech kind of doctrine. But that is also not an unlimited right, and it's also a much more restrictive right than an individual has. So both individuals and companies have First Amendment rights, but they're not the same degree of rights, and they don't afford the same degrees of protection. So for, for what is otherwise a very short amendment, it's devolved into a lot of confusion as of late. Uh, I want to pick up on that thing that you touched on, which is commercial speech. And, you know, we've we've spoken a lot about Section 230 and, you know, there's benefits to us as individuals for content that we publish on platforms and there's a clear benefit to the platforms as well. But from a brand and advertiser perspective, how have they benefited from Section 230 aside from, you know, that these platforms have grown up and provided an opportunity to reach audiences and advertise to them? Yeah, I mean, for, for brands and advertisers, I mean, my understanding is, you know, the the, the platform might not necessarily have to accept legal liability. Like, for instance, let's say you had an ad that libeled someone, right? The platform might not necessarily accept liability, but that doesn't necessarily protect the brand. You know what I'm saying? It's the platform's immunity, not the brand's. So there's a little bit of a difference that just because the brand posted something on the platform, if there is a legal recourse from that, Section 230 isn't a protection from you from that. It's protection for the platform. So in one sense, Section 230, you could say, has actually helped 
advertisers have more confidence that they can advertise on platforms and taken some of that risk away from platforms that would have to then vet every advertisement on there. That's really interesting. Uh, have you seen any brands actually come out and speak about Section 230, either historically or in recent time? I haven't. You know, I talked to a couple of friends about this the other day. I haven't seen brands as of late necessarily say much about 230. I think what we're experiencing right now in the aftermath of um, the George Floyd incident and the incidents leading up to that, I think you're seeing a lot of brands being a lot more proactive in general on what they consider to be social issues, right? In some ways that I think brands have traditionally stayed away from because they don't necessarily want to be in the position of alienating any potential part of their demographic or their customer base. I think there's an interest in the evolution going now to brands increasingly wanting to not sit on the sidelines. I saw a McDonald's ad today <laughs> that basically referenced back to the uh, George Floyd and some of the social justice issues. And I, I don't know that they've traditionally been active in that space. And I point that out to say that what you could see and what is increasingly this just utterly hyper-politicalized environment, what you could see is a crossover effect there. And I say that because you are seeing brands increasingly not wanting to sit on the sidelines on social issues, the aspects around 230 could become, and I, I'm extrapolating to something to just think about where this might be going, and I'm not saying I've seen this yet, but you could potentially see brands say, do I really want to put and associate my brand on Facebook, a company that's going to become synonymous with disinformation, right? Do I really want to put my brand on a platform that does no policing of content or doesn't do a good enough job policing content in a way that, you know, a larger increasing segment of society might be opposed to how they're influencing the democratic process, right? Are there risks going down to associate myself with a platform that may or may not be on the wrong side of history? It's a bigger picture issue, but I can see it evolving in that direction. I don't know that it's quite there yet because 230 is still a little bit arcane. Uh, I think you. I think that's a really valid point, and I think you know brands struggle with that all all the time, and how much they're prepared to hold platforms accountable. And I think in this time of you know where social injustice is so much in the spotlight, being able to brands being able to find their voice and actually speak on these platforms in a way that's confident makes Section Two Thirty super important. One of the things you sort of outlined there, though, is and I think about this in the context of both brand safety and, you know, the way Twitter describes it as platform health, <laughs> is if platforms actually got better at understanding the way they worked on Section 230, it could actually make them a better environment for advertisers, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely could. There could be potentially... There could be a lot of upside, I think, for brands and advertisers when they, if there were to be better, um, a better environment for brand safety, brand suitability, right? It could be a better environment where a brand would have less concerns about being, you know, accidentally placed against inflammatory content. It could be a better environment where brands, you know, had more confidence about the safety of where they were placing. I mean, there could be a lot of potential upswings for that. Um, but to, to be fair, the platforms have terms of services, right? They have policies, terms of services. They have processes for takedown. They've got processes in place for how they deal with, you know, hate speech, inflammatory content, potential libelists, et cetera. But I don't get this sense that they're very uniform against platforms. And to be fair, the definitions of a lot of this stuff, particularly around hate speech, inflammatory content, they don't always have uniform definitions, right? 
the um, Electronic Frontier Foundation that's been trying to get the platforms together to do that for years, right? To put together a more consistent framework for how they address these issues online. And there, there are other groups who've done that as well. What's, what's increasingly, I think, hard in that process is you do seem to have certain platforms going in one direction right now and certain platforms going in another direction, right? You've got Twitter and uh, Snapchat, et cetera, being a little bit more hard-lined about we're going to take a hard-line approach here. And you've got other platforms like Facebook saying, listen, we have never wanted to be the arbiters of speech and we don't want to start now, right? So you've got some of these really big players just very publicly diverging in their point of view of consistency of approach, which is going to make that approach of, you know, operational consistency for brands, platform, brands, advertisers, everyone, it's going to make it harder down the line because you've got so many of the large platforms right now that have publicly committed to opposing points of view. Yeah, the divergence is always a dangerous thing because that almost forces the hand of regulators to step in yeah. and you can end up with regulations that no one likes. Uh, I mean, there's a lot more we could talk about, and this is a really complex topic. Is there any sort of sources of information that we should be pointing clients to or, you know, books or things that people should read to sort of better understand this issue? Yeah, there's a couple of different things, the sources that I use um, to look at kind of not only what's going on from 230 from a historical perspective, but some organizations who have been working on 230 issues from a number of years. And I like I like the three sources I'm about to mention because they come from very different places. One comes from a very sort of pro-industry innovation economy point of view. One comes from a very much a consumer advocacy point of view. And one is an academic. So the first one I already mentioned, it's a group in San Francisco called the EFF. And they've done a lot of work around 230 in um, the past 10, 15 years, actually, um, about you know what it means, where it's going, et cetera. The other group is a group based here in Washington, D.C., and it's called the ITIF, and that's the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. And they take a very entrepreneurial innovation economy. Technology is a raw good. Consumer data is a raw good. That's the building blocks of our tech economy. So they take a very like entrepreneurial enterprise point of view on 230. They're doing a lot of interesting work around it, too. And then the third source I really like for more information about 230 is a law professor, at Santa Clara Law School out in California. His name is uh, Professor Eric Goldman. And he does a lot of really interesting research and a lot of interesting sort of thought processes on what 230 means and where it's evolving to. So those are three sources, honestly, that I look at to get more information about 230. And they represent different viewpoints of the spectrum. So I think you kind of get all sides between the three of them. Okay, we'll make sure to include those websites and organizations in the notes with the podcast. Uh, I really want to say thank you. This has been really informing and really appreciate making yourself available. Uh, I hope this has been helpful to our clients as well. Thanks again, Alison. Great. Thanks, guys. Alison, Joshua, thank you for that great conversation all about Section 230. Uh, I learned a lot, and I did not know that there was a difference between uh, personal and corporate speech uh, in in that clause. So uh, really exciting uh, conversation there, uh, and it's a really important conversation that we should be having uh, today. Uh, and with that, that about wraps up this week's show. Feel free to reach out to myself on Twitter, uh, at T-I-P-P-I-E-R, uh, or Adam. He's at Adam J. Simon uh, with any questions. Uh, we'd love to hear from our, our listeners. Uh, and we'll talk to you all next week. So stay safe uh, and talk soon. Bye.